HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. My Family Recipe is a new podcast from Food52 and Heritage Radio Network, bringing you cherished heirloom recipes and the stories behind them. Listen and follow wherever you get your podcasts. This is Meant to be Eaten and the Gastronomica podcast on Heritage Radio Network. I'm your host for today, Daniel Bender. This episode is part of a special series in collaboration with Gastronomica, the Journal for Food Studies. Our fall 2021 issue, 21.3 on global gastropolitics, features articles on taste, ingredients, palates, and power from different times and places. For the next several weeks, join hosts from the Gastronomica Editorial Collective as we talk with authors. And my guest this week is Aya Hirata Kimura, a professor of sociology at the University of Hawaii, Manoa. She joins us today to talk about her essay called Tsukemono, Japanese Pickles and Their Traditional Vegetables. She's published very widely, including most recently a book called Radiation Brain Moms and Citizen Scientists, The Gender Politics of Food Contamination After Fukushima. And Aya joins us today from Hawaii. Welcome. Perhaps we could just begin by asking you what you teach, what you research in Hawaii. Yeah, thank you for having me. Um, I teach uh, different courses like Women and Health. Uh, food politics is my favorite. And of course, I teach uh, sociological methods and theories. Um, yeah, so I am teaching actually the food politics course next semester. And I'm also teaching sociology of sustainability for graduate levels as well. Which is a in an interesting way, a good segue to think about vegetables and fermentation. I, I gotta say, I found your paper especially fascinating to read. In, in my lifetime here in North America, knowledge about Japanese food has really grown, pun intended. And it's expanded enough that in everyday conversations, Japanese food, types of restaurants, traditions have become common knowledge. Skemono though, will be new to many, including to me. And I want to ask you about skemono in a, in a couple of different ways. First, tell us about the different varieties, how it's made. Later on, we could talk about some of the traditional and religious importance and about what that says about taste. But let's start from the basics. So different kinds of skemono you're asking. 
Yeah, um, how it's made. Just perhaps the best place to begin is how do you make it? How does a, a vegetable become it? Sure. Um, so there are so many different kinds of tsukemono. According to one expert, there are like 600 different kinds of tsukemono in Japan. So I am sure that I have never tasted vast majority of the you know, existing tsukemono in Japan. Um, so I make myself make tsukemono called nukazuke. So nuka is rice bran. So the husks, you know, when you polish the rice into white rice, that's the byproduct of it. And so nuka is kind of a brownish flour kind of thing. And so how you make it into the bed for skemono is that you first roast it, roast the you know, rice bran, and you would add water and salt and different kinds of vegetable scraps. You can even add miso or you know eggshells or something like that to give uh, depth to the taste. And uh, you have to wait for a couple of days up to maybe a week until your uh, nukadoko, which is the rice bran bed, is ready. And when it's ready, you can just add any kind of vegetables. My kids like cucumbers so i would you know put a little bit of salt and get rid of the extra moisture and put into the the nukadoko the bed and then cover up and then pat it and you have to make sure that it's the surrounding area is clean and leave it for maybe like a day um, so you know if it is hot um, fermentation is quicker. And so in summertime, maybe you can get your nukazuke in a day. <clears throat> in winter, it might take a couple of days to get it. So that's just one type of uh, tsukemono. And nukazuke is very kind of homey tsukemono that many people used to make at home. My mother uh, made it. Um, my you know, relatives made it. It's very, very common at Japanese homes. But that's just one kind. But you say there's 600 different kinds. Is that because of the sheer variety of vegetables or is it a regional mm, variation? I think it's both, yeah. Um, so there are different, um, like pickling juice, you know, tsukejiru, and also fermentation mixture like beds. And so you can use, you know, the rice bran that I talked about, but also you can use sake leaves. Mirin, uh, do you know mirin? That's sour, uh, sweet um, uh, seasoning and leaves from that pro uh, production process. Soy sauce, uh, rice vinegar, plum vinegar, miso, different things. Um, so in addition to the, the variety of those uh, fermentation mixture, there are obviously so many different varieties of vegetables. And the, you know, the reason I wanted to um, write this article is really to highlight how traditional rare varieties of vegetables are used in different kinds of tsukemono. So I was really interested in, because I'm a sociologist, you know, I'm not a food writer. And the, the larger objective of this article really is to tell stories about not only about food, but also about agriculture and the broader society and economy and you know in particular how skemono has really helped to preserve different traditional varieties of vegetables i like the 
there's a little play on words. I love a good pun. There's a play on words there about preservation of traditions, but also about the preservation of the of the vegetables themselves. Um, yeah, and I guess skemono itself is a preservation method too. <laughs> when you know, there is no refrigerator, you, you have to preserve vegetables in different ways, and pickling, I think, was important. I love the multiple time scales there, right? Like the long time scale of heritage and the shorter time scale, perhaps, of fermentation. Do you think fermentation offers some, I mean, to draw broadly there, do you think that fermentation offers some new ways of thinking about culinary heritage? Yeah, definitely. I mean, if you said that fermentation may be of a shorter timeline, but um, you know, I talked about nukazuke and nukadoko, right? And I know that um, families actually keep fermentation bed nukadoko over generations. I have found one article citing multiple, multiple families having more than 100-year-old nukadoko. And so, you know, you can just keep adding um, nuka to your nukadoko and pass it on from, you know, from grandmother to mother to kids and you know, grandkids. So um, fermentation can actually continue over generations. That's fascinating. Now, what about for you? It, did it, did yours, are you the originator? I am the originator. My mother kept nukadoko for a long time, and um, but she stopped doing that, and so I started my own. And you know, I was in Japan for the last year for during the COVID, and you know, I started wonderful nukadoko. You know, it over time it really takes on complex flavor, and I wanted to bring it back home to uh, Honolulu. But I wasn't sure the customs agent would allow it because it will look quite strange, right? It's it's a pot of kind of soil-looking, wet, I don't know, brownish thing that is kind of smelly. And so I didn't bring it back. And I am actually starting a new one here. This is a strange question. and But when you had to leave it behind... And I, because I, I asked the question because you want to talk about in the, in your article, you do talk about human and non-human relationships. When you had to leave it behind, did, did you feel a sense of loss? No, actually, I have, um, I have a friend who is taking care of it now in Kyoto. So um, my, my nukadoko has been adopted. <laughs> I love the way that you personalize that. Oh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> So, and I, well, let's come back to this, but I want to ask you first about some of the ritual uses of these pickled vegetables. You begin your article, some beautiful photos. Listeners are going to have to go to the magazine to see them. But you begin by talking about it, picturing a festival of tsukemono. Can you tell us about the ritual use of these pickled vegetables? Mm-hmm. Okay. Um so this is the Tsukemono Festival that's held every summer at Kayatsu Shrine. And so I visited there. And um, so what they do is to have local varieties of vegetables from the nearby uh, farms. And the priests would sort of ritualistically purify the vegetables. And the people gathered um can put those vegetables into a ceramic pot 
and uh, add it with the salt. And they essentially, you know, sort of ritualistically make uh, tsukemono for uh, the gods, for the Shinto. And uh, what they do after fermentation is that they will take it to the higher-ranked shrine as an, as an offering. And um, because it's, I think, only kind of Tsukemono God and Tsukemono Festival in Japan, a lot of people from the Tsukemono industry also uh, come here and attend this festival. Now, for me, I found myself wondering, is, is Tsukemono, would you say that it's part of a meal, part of a ritual, or does it perhaps blend the two in in, in new kinds of ways? Yeah, uh, so there are so many different kinds of tsukemono, and some tsukemono are considered very sort of home, homemade and very mundane, not so like high-end, and nukazuke is a really good example of that. In fact, if you say um, there's a phrase in Japanese that say that women smells like nukazuke, which means that women is very, you know, sort of housewifely and not sophisticated. So that's the imagery that is conjured by the word nukazuke or that um, that kind of tsukemono. Whereas other types of tsukemono are used for special gift giving. And gift giving in Japan is very elaborate process. And particularly there are two occasions in the year that people do it, one in summer and one in uh, winter. And the winter one is called osebo. And uh, some types of tsukemono are used particularly for that uh, gift giving. For example, um, I write, I wrote about the Senmaizuke pickle. Uh, so Senmaizuke is a traditional tsukemono from Kyoto that uses a traditional variety of turnip, kabu turnip from Kyoto called shogoin kabura. I'm sorry to bring in so many Japanese words. But um, this, this tsukemono called Senmaizuke is a kind of like upscale uh that's oftentimes used for the end of the year winter gift giving. And for that purpose, it's, you know, it's visual, visually very pretty tsukemono. It's very white and um, it's round, it's sliced thinly. Senmai means thousand slices. So uh, kabu turnip is sliced very, very thinly, and it's, it's in a perfect round. It's very white and oftentimes uh, packaged with green uh, traditional vegetable with the red uh, chili. So, you know, if you can picture it, it's white, red, and green. It's really pretty. So it's, you know, very suitable for special gift giving. Well, the images are, are, are stunning. Um, and very new to me. Now, I, I was, again, really interested in some of the words you're using. Um, High-end, upscale. Is that a question of aesthetics, cost, taste? All three? Yeah, I, I guess all three. The I think high-end ones maybe tend to put more emphasis on how they look, but also... Some of them take really long time to make it. For example, um, another Kyoto tsukemono that uses traditional vegetable 
is narazuke. So narazuke is another kind of tsukemono that use sake leaves. And, um, you know, picklers take a long time to make this particular tsukemono. It's up to, I think, three years that they take to make uh, narazuke. And so, you know, if it takes that long, it costs a lot more, you have to store it, so stretch is the cost. And so the cost is an issue, and narazuke is quite expensive. It's probably like $30 a pound range. And so, you know, it's, it's again, being used for gift giving. So does it fit into a kind of a Epicurean uh, gourmet culture, perhaps? Mm, yeah. So I think some of them, particularly right now, are you know garnering a lot of interest. So there is a fermentation boom in Japan, so to speak. And so a lot of people are interested in um, different kinds of artisanal skemono, including, I think, narazuke and different skemono that use traditional vegetables. How does it fit, though, into notions of culinary heritage? Just from my own reading of from the work of, of others, like Eric Rath, part of our Gastronomica collect, Collective, I know that notions of culinary heritage are particularly important and very politicized in Japan. How does tsukumono fit into the expression of culinary heritage in Japan? Right. So I think tsukemono has been very marginalized in the Japanese, well, the idea of Japanese food and what constitutes Japanese food or washoku. You know, washoku became designated as the uh, world heritage, I think, um, a couple of years ago. But, you know, like you said in the beginning, people know about sushi and ramen and tempura, other things, miso maybe. But I don't think many people outside of Japan know about skemono. And I think the image that, you know, skemono has tended to be associated with is a lot of additives, it's artificial. And, um, but, so I think for that reason, it has been kind of marginalized as a part of the culinary heritage in Japan. But I think I'm trying to highlight in my work is that there's a lot of interesting biocultural uh, interaction. And in particular, how tsukemono has used rare kinds of traditional vegetables and perhaps helped to, you know, propel or help to continue farming those uh, heirloom vegetables. We're going to take a short break and we'll be right back. And I want to ask you then about the ways in which tsukemono became an industrial product and perhaps its future. Good food is worth a thousand words. This is Arthi Menon, and I'm delighted to share a new podcast with you, My Family Recipe, from Food52 and Heritage Radio Network. Adapted from Food52's much-loved column of the same name, the My Family Recipe podcast will bring its pages to life. Each episode of My Family Recipe brings you a cherished heirloom recipe and the story behind it, from voices across the world of food. We'd open these tubs of dough and as they would exhaust these 
incredible yeasty fumes and it just smelled like nothing else. It was so intoxicating. I'll interview writers and chefs, parents and children about what's passed down along with the foods that we know and love. Chinese people aren't like born with a download on how to like velvet chicken. You know, like that's not something that just like comes to you. Listen and follow wherever you get your podcasts. And we're back. This is Meant to be Eaten, the Gastronomica podcast. I'm Daniel Bender, and I'm talking with Aya Komura about her article, Tsukimono, Japanese Pickles and Their Traditional Vegetables, available now in issue 21.3 of Gastronomica, the journal for food studies. Just before the break, you made a mention of how these pickles have been perhaps... um, known negatively for chemical additives. Has it become an industrial product? Yeah, so that's a really interesting question that I'm still trying to figure out. I'm writing a book. Um, This article that I published in Gastronomica is really the first iteration, one chapter of that book. And industrialization of skemono is a really interesting question to ask. And um, as far as I could tell, I think it has happened in various phases. And what is really interesting to me is that um, skemono came to be mass produced since the late 19th century. And it was driven by Japan's industrialization and militarization. So let me talk about two things, right? The first one is industrialization. So at the end of the 19th century, Japan started to build uh, many large modern factories, particularly in the textile industries like silk mills and cotton mills. You know, government encouraged it, subsidized it. And these factories needed workers. And many of them were women from rural areas. And these women in large numbers needed to be fed and what they were fed tended to be inclusive of tsukemono in addition to, of course, rice. And so I've been looking for uh, sort of menus of the, these factory canteens, and I am finding tsukemono everywhere. Um, so, for example, the government commissioned a report to survey the situations in these manufacturing factories and published the report in 19. 1903. And they wrote that, you know, conditions of the factory workers in general was poor and the food was also of poor quality. And they said something like, you know, food was usually just with rice and skemono, maybe with miso soup. In rare cases, dried fish is given. Uh, the report also had rare um, oral history type of interviews with the factory workers. And so I found this one female worker talking about how bad the food was at the these, uh, I think she was at Silk Mill. And she was saying something like, you know, rice is usually the part, but rice is diluted with wheat and side is just usually 
miso soup and pickles, lunch, you know, that was breakfast and lunch is also uh, pickle. And sometimes maybe beans are served. Dinner is also soup and pickle. It's almost the same thing throughout the year. So, you know, you can see that skemono was usually fed for each three meal to these factory workers. So that's, that, that's really mm-hmm. disentangling some of that story of of culinary heritage right here, where you're mm-hmm. adding a certain both gender and class to go back to that issue of class seem to be part of the history here. Right, right. So then sort of, you know, mundane kinds of skemono was fed to these factory workers. Many of them were women. And, you know, in terms of environmental consequences, right, because these factories are big and concentrated in particular areas, that also led to the expansion of farming areas for vegetables used for particular kinds of skemono for these canteens. And that led to the selection in terms of the variety and reduced the numbers of rare vegetables. Now, as as it became an industrial product, was there still the the more ritual and home production of mm-hmm. yeah. kimono, um, in, including some that were associated perhaps with with elite consumers? Yeah, so we can think about both commercial production and home production. The skimono making and home continued on, obviously. And particularly when people didn't have refrigeration, that was one of the ways that people preserved vegetables, particularly for winter seasons, right? And in fact, um, you know, this is a little bit before the 19th century, but um, a lot of feudal lords encouraged skimono making as a uh, famine response, possible famine uh, protection or resilience. As a historian, I'm fascinated by these stories. Within the home, who did the production of Mm -hmm. the pickling? Yeah, so I think it was oftentimes women, although um, different kinds of skimono were made by men, particularly if you are handling like big vegetables like daikon radish. I don't know whether, whether listener would be familiar with daikon radish, but, you know, it could be very big and long and people pickled in big barrels, right? So you had to transport the daikon radish and then you had to handle big, big barrels. So that case, men might have been in charge of making it. So uh, it depends on the kinds, but things like nukazuke that I'm still making, I think it has been associated with female work. Now, what about that militarization of Tsukimono? Yeah, so that was also interesting to find out. So um, around the same time the factories were growing in Japan, uh, in the end of the 19th century, the size of the Japanese military started to grow and get modernized. So, so that's when the expanded military really had to find ways to systematically feed its soldiers. And so I was looking for different, again, menus from different military branches and to try to see like what they fed to soldiers. And I found, I'm finding that skimono has been always a part of the standard uh, military foods 
So it's again like, you know, factory meal, breakfast was rice and skemono and miso soup, lunch, rice and skemono and maybe fish and dinner, maybe, you know, a little bit of meat, rice and skemono. So skemono uh, tends to be always there. And um, I should also talk about how Japanese overseas military expansion was also accompanied by tsukemono. In fact, military use of uh, tsukemono overseas really accelerated technological innovations in tsukemono. So we didn't have canned tsukemono before, uh, but in you know, a military usage of canned tsukemono really, I think, accelerated that technological intervention. And so what happened was military used to ship the barrels of tsukemono on ships uh, when they went overseas, but these tended to rot on the board and it was very difficult, military found, to feed on the front line to each individual uh, soldiers because it had to be taken out from the barrel, it had to be chopped, right? It had to be served to different people. And so military really wanted to have canned skimono. And so one of the Single iconic, serve, so to speak. Yeah, exactly. And, you know, hopefully it preserves much better than the ones in barrel. And um, so I don't know whether listeners might have eaten curry rice, like Japanese style kare raisu. Um, you know, we have restaurants here in Hawaii that serve this it's it's a little bit Absolutely. different from regular curry yeah okay so if you have curry rice in japan right now they tend to be accompanied by the atsukemono called fukujinzuke and fukujinzuke is yet another type of tsukemono made with different uh, chopped vegetables like cucumber and eggplants and it's cooked in the seasoning with soy sauce so it's kind of brownish reddish hue and so that fukujinzuke is one of the first canned tsukemono that was used by the military. And um, I found a newspaper article that said that army bought a fukujinzuke as military food for the Russo-Japanese War of 1904-05. Around the same time that canned food is making its way into the military diet all around the world. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so military, military, yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah, military tried to make, uh, I think they had a factory for canning beef for that purpose, and uh, they tried to make fukujinzuke, that's kemono, uh, but they, I think, relied also on commercial tsukemono producers in making the canned fukujinzuke and just purchase them. But if I'm listening carefully, I mean, I'm and I'm more familiar with some of the histories of canned food in the American military, where it really came to be associated with single brand spam, most obviously, right? Where (laughs) the product itself was less important than the, Mm. well, exactly, right? And less, less important than than the product itself. But if I'm listening here, it sounds like there, it, it still was associated with the vegetables and the process, perhaps less so than individual brands? Or were there brands that still people might know more than the vegetable itself. You mean brands of the products? Brands of tsukemono rather than the individual vegetables. Right. I mean, fukujinzuke, for example, that's used a lot by the military and the Navy, um, uses different kinds of vegetables. There is no single one. It's it's a cho- different kinds of chopped vegetables. 
So that was that the name of the company itself? Yeah, well, Fukujinsuke came to be kind of a generic name for a type of skemono, but I think it started off as a as a product brand. So there there is uh, there are companies that are famous for particular skemono and people would know, oh yeah, you know that skemono. So there is an interesting ways in which Tsukemono and uh, spam find themselves crossing paths and perhaps merging in different ways in the Pacific world. That's interesting that you mentioned it because another <laughs> chapter that I'm working on, because I teach at University of Hawaii and located in Honolulu, I was actually also interested in how Tsukemono traveled with the Japanese migration. That was really my next question. So thank you. Oh, yeah. great. Yeah. So I'm just starting to look at historical materials on this. And there is very little written about, you know, obviously it's kemono and different kinds of vegetable that uh, immigrants might have brought from Japan to Hawaii. Um, but at least I found that um, the late 19th century immigrants who came as single, you know, male workers to sugar plantations, they the plantation companies often hired one of them to be the cook, and because you know when families came over, or when women came over to get married to these workers, then those women took on the role of of making bento lunches and providing meals to these men on the fields, right? I mean, women themselves also worked in the fields as well. But um, before that family migration or the marriages happened in Hawaii, there were a lot of single male immigrants. And uh, so the canteen food was important for the plantation economy. And plantation food, I was able to find that they, they fed quite a bit of skemono. In fact, one of the materials used the word skemono in it. Um, so on a typical day, the labor is fed with skemono. Uh, the pickled vegetables is how they explain. And um, yeah, so skemono came to be a part of plantation meals as well. Have you found examples of where migrants themselves might have traveled with their their pots or their their fermentation beds? You mentioned that some of those have been in families for for generations. Have you found that people have been traveling? Where examples of where migrants traveled with some of that, uh, some of that material yeah, that's culture? A, yeah, that's a very good question. Well, I found one mention because I'm interested in agrobiodiversity. I was also looking for how immigrants might have carried seas. And in fact, there was one line in the history um, archive that says like some immigrants carried seas in their pockets to Hawaii from Japan. I did not find mention of nukadoko or any of the fermentation beds. What I found was that people, like earlier uh, waves of immigrants brought miso and soy sauce and maybe rice. And you know, after a while, Japanese communities right, developed a good network and they started to import as well, uh, tsukemono, miso, soy sauce, sake, and everything else. And they started to make their own tsukemono here. So for yourself as a researcher, who also makes tsukemono, have you found... 
that the process of making it, the everyday tasting it, feeding it to your to your kids, um, has that? How does that come into the research process for you? Right. So, um, so I am an environmental sociologist, and the part of the reason I got really interested in skemono has to do with, I mean, it's really, you know, historically really interesting and under-researched area. But also I've found that fermentation has become a keyword in thinking about sustainability in Japan. And, and in many other places too, absolutely. Right. And part of it, I think, you know, there is a growing interest in fermented foods for you know, health reasons, right? I think you know, after the COVID or during the COVID, I think there was more emphasis on how fermented foods are good for you and microbiome, et cetera, et cetera. So I think there is health interest in that, but um, particularly because I guess I can talk about my previous or my ongoing project, but also a previous book about Fukushima nuclear reactor accident. Well, I was very interested in how you went from contamination, nuclear disaster, to pickled vegetables. Right. And so when I was doing, I mean, so these things happen, the research project kind of, you know, come to you rather than you choose the project almost. And that has been the case for me. Um, but when I was doing the, the research for the Fukushima nuclear accident, and it was also about food contamination and food politics and gender politics around it as well. Um, but that was when I was realizing that, okay, the fermentation has become a keyword somehow. I think Fukushima accident raised many issues, of course, about risk of nuclear energy, the deception by the industry and the government, manipulation of nuclear energy as sort of clean energy and so on, carbon-free. Um, so I wrote about those things in the book. But I think accident also raised questions about the way of life, limits of modern technologies, economy in the market, and so on. And so after the accident, I think many more people started to say that we have to move away from this destructive tendency in economy that prioritizes profits of a life, um, of a life and livelihood. And so fermentation seems to be sort of inspiration for those people who are interested in uh, alternative economy, alternative ways of relating to non-humans and to microbes, you know, in this case. And so that is another aspect that led me to Skemono, in addition to agrobiodiversity. And you have I guess a your question line. was... Yeah. Uh -huh. No, well, go ahead. Go ahead. No, no, because you, you asked about, like, how do you sort of feel when you are making Skemono, right? Absolutely. Yeah. And so Nukazuke is a good example, that the one that uses Nuka, the rice bran bed. So... Nukazuke, you have to you have to care for it every day. So it's not like you put in your vegetable in bed and wait for two days and take it out. You you have to mix it every day, preferably morning and evening. Uh, you have to mix it with your hands. You have to kind of watch it. You have to smell it and make sure that in a way, like you know, microbes are happy in that rice bran bed. 
um, you have to touch it because you know you want to know the moisture level. You you need to watch it closely because if there is a white thing on top, that means that yeast that's unwanted is taking over the good ones, right? So you have to make sure that it's in a good condition. So I think some people, including myself, are sort of enter into a caring relationship with these invisible things. Uh, and then you have to continue care for it, right? Like you have to, you have to be um, doing it and over time. And you're feeding it to others too. Right, exactly. And so, you know, they, um, I mean, giving, I'm giving, humans are giving the microbes good environment and then microbes are giving me something back in the form of delicious kimono, right? And so that's, I think that's part of the reason why fermentation and kimono are inspiring a lot of people beyond just individualistic consumerist sort of, you know, I want to improve my health. You have a line in, in the article that I was really drawn to when you talk about, as you put it, a different non-human and non-human relationship in a decomposition economy that is regeneration. You also sit on a board of an organic farm escaping the classroom whenever possible it sounds like the connection here between regeneration and preservation is enormously hopeful right so decomposition economy is not my term um, that's term um, that's coined by this person who is operating um, interesting fermentation uh, shop that sells you know bread and beer and other fermented things and I think the idea is about um, how we think about the alternative to hyper-destructive um, in the economy that results in highly skewed accumulation of wealth, right? And so these people are also thinking about or taking fermentation as an inspiration for thinking about alternative modes of economy and market. And... I'm still trying to figure out this part because I haven't really done interviews with these people. But one of the things that they say is that money doesn't rot, right? Money keeps accumulating and it results in sort of very skewed accumulation of wealth in the hands of the very few, huge inequality. And so the idea of the decomposition economy is that um, perhaps to flip that gaze and then say that can we center rotting or you know putrefaction or decomposition as a center as opposed to incessant accumulation of wealth reshaping in a different in all kinds of different ways our relationship to land culture history and more right Mm -hmm. And you can start from your kitchen. I think it's a wonderful way because I think we tended to think of nature as something out there like wilderness, pristine rainforest out there somewhere, but not in my in my daily life. But fermentation brings it really close to you. So I'm interested, a last question for me. I'm interested in your own hearing some more about your own experiences in Hawaii, uh, fermenting vegetables. Has this 
practice, your own practice, brought you into interesting new kinds of relationships with other kinds of people and other kinds of traditions of fermentation in a place as multicultural as Hawaii? Mm-hmm. That's a really interesting question. Um, so I can Do you find yourself sharing mm-hmm. uh, recipes, sharing ideas, finished products? Right. Well, I'm ashamed to say that my nukadoko has not really taken off yet. <laughs> I've been so busy after I came back in summer. Um, so I started it, but I don't think it's in the perfect condition. You know, you have to really tinker with it. So I haven't been able to share. But when I was in Kyoto last year and up to this summer, you know, my, my nukadoko was in pretty happy place. And what's good about nukazuke is that, you know, if you have lots of cucumber, for example, it's because it's in the height of summer and you, can, you feel like I can't possibly eat this much, you can just put it in the nukadoko and, you know, wait for a couple of days and it preserves in the form of tsukemono, right? And then I can start giving out to, you know, friends and acquaintances and so on. So, um, in fact, I think we can think of tsukemono as a part of sort of sharing economy or maybe better put it, a gift economy, right? So you're gifting and tsukemono is also a gift from the microbes. Sharing economies and decomposition economies altogether, regeneration and preservation. Well, thank you, Aya, for joining us. And listeners can read the full article and then see the beautiful photographs in Gastronomica, the journal for food studies, volume 21.3. And for more details, visit gastronomica.org. Join us next week when Krishnendu Ray talks to Sucharita Kanjalal about tomatoes, taste, and Indian recipes. Bye for this week.